0: And now, podcasting from a two-person hot tub high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK, Rick, and their highly paid intern, Malord. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Wednesday, February 17th and my guest is Dr. Michelle Mazier. She was with us last week. She is the co-chair of the COVID-19 Incident Command at Elmhurst Hospital, and she is also the medical director of the immediate care and walk-in clinic. How are you, Dr. Mazir?
1: I'm great. Thanks, Rich. Thanks for having me.
0: Glad to have you back. You've been on the podcast a few times, and I'm sure that all the attention you get on the podcast is way more than the attention you get with all those TV interviews you do.
1: It, I get equal attention from both. The podcast is pretty popular. Okay. Thank,
0: thanks for uh, humoring us. But um, So could you give us a little uh, um, bit of a, an update on uh, the COVID patient census at the hospital?
1: I can. So overall, overall uh, trending in a, um, a positive um, direction. So this week we have 26 inpatients right now. Three of those are on ventilators. We have three patients that are waiting for our COVID results. We have had a total of 168 deaths, and we have discharged 1,483 patients. Overall, in DuPage County, to date, 75,140 positives with 1,244 deaths. And then in the state, 1.17 million positives with 22,199 deaths. So I think important last week when we talked, we had 32 inpatients, this week we have two, 26. So we're seeing a steady decline in that number, which which is good.
0: You know, from the outside, when I hear that number, 26, compared to what it was three or four times that, well, not four times, but maybe three times that, um, it seems like, wow, that's relief. It's down to 26. But you still have 26 folks there yeah. with COVID. So it's, it's still a serious situation there, isn't it?
1: It's still here. It's still here. We have 26 and we have three on ventilators. So those three patients on ventilators, you're looking at typically prolonged hospitalizations, and those are the sickest of the six. So it's not gone. Um, slowly but surely, it's getting better.
0: We've heard a lot in the media about the different strains of coronavirus that are being uh, uh, found out there. So my question is, how do we know that they're there if we're not testing for the particular strain, and are any local health systems actually testing for that?
1: So the ability to test for the variants is complicated. Um, It would require actual gene sequencing of the virus, and that's not something that's done at, you know, in your routine lab location. We do not do that here. It is available, but that would be you would find that available in places like tertiary care settings, university settings, and the CDC.
0: We've uh, heard from uh, Pam Dunley several times um, that there just are virtually no flu cases uh, that are being treated at the hospital this year, and it's it's very curious. Is it is it all masks and and if it is, and social distancing and if it is. Is uh, does that necessarily indicate that the flu is not nearly as contagious as COVID?
1: I do think that the precautions that we have taken for COVID have drastically decreased our flu season. This is our typical really busy time of the year with flu. And, and I can speak to the clinical situation. We just are not seeing patients that that you would think, oh, this person must have influenza. It's a pretty typical presentation and you can typically tell. Um, We we are testing for it. So we're testing in both the inpatient and the ambulatory setting and we have not had any. Um, I think it's the masking. I think it's our attention to hand washing. I think it's our attention to social distancing um, that is proving to uh, eradicate our flu season this year.
0: There have been a lot of guidance that, uh, especially from the federal government, that says maybe we should be wearing two masks instead of one, And, and obviously the more masks you wear, the more it's uncomfortable, and we could just put a plastic bag over our head and make sure we don't get any germs, but obviously that wouldn't be good for our health. So is it really significantly safer with two
1: masks versus one mask? Uh, This is a timely question. We actually, we have a steering committee that meets every week, and we had our infection control team um, pull up everything that was out there from the CDC and bring it back to us so that we could make recommendations both internally and externally. And basically, the recommendation remains that if you have a well-fitted mask, um, you don't need two masks. It's a little different inside the hospital. You need a different level of masking depending on the procedure you're doing. But for the community, the important thing is to make sure that your mask fits. Um, You know, The ones that you can pinch above the bridge of your nose give you a better seal. And the other thing is you wanna make sure that you don't have gaps on the side of it. So a well-fitting mask is still um, hands-down protective. There's no need for a second mask. The other thing that people at home can do to test if their mask is you know, thick enough, the CDC recommends a, um, a two-layered mask. So if you hold it up to the light, you really shouldn't be able to see much light through it. Um, so as long as you have a quality mask that fits, you, you don't need two of them.
0: I see a lot of those disposable masks, the light blue ones that that look like something you'd see in a hospital but probably aren't. Um, where there are big gaps on the side. So uh, that's obviously concerning, isn't it?
1: It is. And you know what the other thing is? There's lots of little tricks that we have as healthcare workers have learned. And if you go online and kind of Google how to close the gaps on the side of the mask, there's all kinds of tied in a knot and then loop it around your ear, or double loop it, that kind of thing. So So people can make sure that their masks are fitting.
0: Properly. a staple guns probably not one of those <laughs> methods right
1: that is not a method no but
0: uh can you give us an update on the number of employees uh, either at the hospital or in the health system in terms of percentage who have been vaccinated
1: yeah so across the system we are at 66 percent um and we and i spoke to this a little bit last week we're slowly seeing an increase we are seeing um we're still doing outreach to those people that have questions. We have several people on the medical staff who have offered to go to department meetings and talk to, to large groups, small groups, individual, one-on-one. We answer questions by email. So we are answering questions, and we're, we're slowly watching that number um, tick up. But I think, you know, of course, our, our goal is 100%. We know that that is not... Um, 100% is not attainable. There will be some people who have a contraindication to the vaccine, but 66 and we're, we're going to keep working on getting that number higher.
0: Last week, you acknowledged that many people have signed up in various places to get, um, you know, as close to the top of the list as they can when the vaccine is available for them and that your advice was that if they do get the vaccine from one of the sources they've signed up for to let the others know that. That uh, they received the vaccine elsewhere. So my question is specific to those patients of EE Health who may have a MyChart account. How do they notify their doctor or MyChart that they've already received the first vaccination elsewhere and won't be needing needing to be on the EE Health list? Yeah, this is
1: great follow up from last week. So. If, if someone receives a message saying that they have an active order for a vaccine and they either do not want the vaccine or they have already received the vaccine, basically they can go into the customer service um, section within my chart and just send customer service a simple message saying that you do not want the vaccine and why would be great. Um, whether that's because you just are not interested in it or you've already received it, and then we'll get that order removed from their um, encounter.
0: Great. Thank you. Uh, Last week, uh, you had indicated that there are more than 70,000 people that were identified in the EE Health group that um, were qualified to get the vaccination in Phase 1B. And you had also indicated that of that group, uh, approximately 7,500 had already received their vaccinations and approximately 9,700 in phase 1A had received vaccinations. Can you update those numbers approximately?
1: I can. So you spoke to that 70,000 number. So that number is for our 1B population that we are risk stratifying. And I had mentioned that that risk stratification will continue to go on in the background in our, in our um, medical record so that if, you know, a week ago you didn't have a certain condition that would have bumped you up in the stratification and then you develop something, you will continuously get re-stratified. So right now, to date, we have risk stratified about 76,000 patients in that population, and of, the, of that, we have placed 31,000 orders. So 31,000 sounds like a lot. Um, you know, we are constrained by our vaccine supply and our capacity to vaccinate. So that's where uh, those numbers sit. As far as completed vaccines, so for 1A, which was our healthcare workers, we completed vaccine series, which is both the first and the second doses, for 7,853 individuals. Those were not all our employees. We did um, have community partners that were not affiliated with the hospital that we were able to help. And then as far as where we stand right now with our 1B doses um, having been given, we have, we have given 11,614 first doses. And we are now just at the time when we will start that group's second doses. So those second doses should uh, finalize over the next three weeks.
0: And isn't it somewhere around, depending on the vaccine, somewhere around two weeks after receipt of the second dose that it's fully effective? That you should be good. Yeah. Good. Uh, You have mentioned that, uh, and Pam previously, that the health system has the capacity to administer in the neighborhood of 2,000 total vaccinations each week, excuse me, each day. And that includes uh, both first vaccines and second doses of the vaccine. Um, Is your supply starting to increase and is it anywhere near keeping up with your capacity?
1: No, so actually this is the um, interesting topic of the week around here. So our supply has actually decreased over the last week. Um, I'm going to take this out a little bit to the county level. So we meet regularly with the county. Um, It's really been a great partnership between all of the healthcare systems um, and DuPage County Health Department. And what we have found is that our capacity within DuPage County to vaccinate is about 52,000 doses a week. Um, among 53 providers. And for the last two allocations, DuPage County has received 2,450 doses from IDPH. And so what that translated to us is that we did not receive vaccine allocation last week or for the week coming up. Um, we, We have received those second dose vaccines that were guaranteed. So where that puts us right now is that today is the last day that we have first doses available for now. We, we are hopeful that this is temporary. And what we will focus on now is completing those second-dose vaccines until the supply is back up.
0: So what's the first day that you would potentially receive first-dose vaccines again? Is, are we talking a week and a half out or a few days out?
1: No, we're probably talking close to two weeks.
0: Wow, That really puts it in perspective.
1: I think it's important for the community to know. um, There still are other resources. So anyone that comes to me, you know, of course I get asked a lot, can I I get a vaccine? And so those um, people, we are really still recommending sign up with your local health department. There are pharmacies that are now capable of vaccinating. So it's important to use all your resources. And again, the goal of the county and the state is to be able to vaccinate everybody that wants it. We're hearing lots in the media about the delivery from Pfizer and Moderna to Illinois is going to increase in the near future, and we are hopeful that that's going to be true and that we'll be able to get right back to doing our first doses along with our second doses.
0: Oh, well, my next question um, is kind of somewhat irrelevant in light of the answer you just gave, but... If and when the the vaccine is available and let's say you're able to give more than 2,000 or that you have enough doses to give more than 2,000 a day, is there a plan in place to expand your capacity at some point? So we
1: have groups that really work on operationalizing this vaccine on an ongoing basis. It's it's really been a challenge because of the, you know, storage limitations and not knowing how much and when we will receive it. So we stay in contact with the county and we will, um, we're, we're flexible. We'll, we'll work with what we have to make sure it's getting out there to the community.
0: Great. Do you have any um, insight as to when the Johnson & Johnson vaccine might be approved and when, if it's approved, that it might be available for uh, healthcare systems?
1: So Johnson & Johnson applied for their emergency use authorization on February 4th, and typically there's about a three-week review process that goes on. So I would anticipate that we're going to start hearing a lot more about it in the next week or so.
0: And we've read a lot about the fact that Johnson & Johnson is a one-dose vaccine, And it sounds like the effectiveness is less than the other vaccines that have already been approved. And from what I've read, it's somewhere around two-thirds effective or 66% effective at preventing um, at least moderate cases and 85% effective at preventing severe cases. So, you know, I'm sitting here saying, well, that's about how the general public does with the virus. Is that additional protection in addition to... Just the fact that the virus doesn't, doesn't end up being severe in most cases anyway?
1: You know, I, I kind of want to re- reframe this a little bit. Um, so I think the way to think about these numbers with 66 and 85, and it can be so confusing to the public, and if you try to read some of these studies, you'll make it through two sentences and give up because they're, they're really difficult to interpret. Um. I think the important thing to remember is that the goal of the vaccine is not to prevent people from getting a common cold, right? The coronavirus has been around as a common cold. Yes, this is a novel virus, but the goal is not to prevent people from getting a common cold. The goal is to prevent people from getting severe illness that leads to either hospitalization or death. And the interesting, um, the interesting number that we didn't talk about is that in the Johnson & Johnson trials they did not have any hospitalizations or deaths at 28 days. So I think um, I think that when you kind of reframe the conversation like that, it doesn't sound so bad, because 66% doesn't sound great, but when you reframe it and kind of change the way you think about it, um, I, I think it's a valid option for vaccinating. Um, so we're, we're eagerly waiting for that to, to be approved
0: so hopefully people will feel confident with that so if you do have a a good supply of it they may choose that as an alternative that's the hope right
1: i think so and i think that there are people who are going to weigh the convenience factor because it's only one vaccine and the other thing is individual risk tolerance i think we talked about this last week um you know those numbers might not be appealing to some people so they may want to hold out for a moderna or a pfizer someone who's a little more risk-tolerant may be okay with that, Johnson & Johnson.
0: I've heard a little bit of uh, discussion in the media among experts about the fact that teachers may now be vaccinated, but the kids aren't, and they may pass it back and forth and then bring it home to their parents. So my question is, does it look like sometime on the horizon in maybe five, six months, some of these will be approved for folks younger than 16 or 18, depending on the vaccine?
1: You know, I don't have firsthand knowledge of this, but I know that my gut tells me that what's going to happen first is that we will be able to vaccinate children like 12 and up because some of those kids are, some of those age groups are in trials and there's just not enough data or information on children younger than that. I mean, we've seen that the vaccine has, Really been very safe overall, both vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer have been pretty safe overall in that 16 and up population. And I think that once the trials are released on the 12 and up, I think you're right. Maybe in the next, within the next six months, we'll start vaccinating that population. I think it's going to be longer before we're vaccinating our toddlers. Um, the other thing to mention about the children getting it is that in general, the, um, kids that are getting it are getting much milder illness. Um, the majority of them and not at all you know downplaying kids that have had serious illness or serious you know chronic effects from COVID, but in general, kids are doing pretty well with it. Um, so that, that's the other thing to remember as we're moving forward with this.
0: Would those kids be any less likely to be contagious and, and pass it to their parents because they have a milder case? Yes. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Now that you've been giving both vaccines for quite a while, have you noticed any significant differences in the side effects that patients uh, may or may not have suffered?
1: No. We have had few side effects and the side effect profile for both of the uh, vaccines has been very similar.
0: And have you had any cases of folks that received both vaccinations of either of the vaccines uh, that have actually ended up um, become, you know, become positive with COVID after they've received both vaccines? We have not. That's good news too. You're full of good news today. I know, right? I'm trying. (laughs) So if, if a patient were scheduled to have an elective surgery, and I know there's a procedure for testing for COVID before that, maybe you could explain that a little bit, but if they do test positive, would that preclude, and they're asymptomatic, would that preclude them from getting that elective surgery until they had uh, recovered, so to speak?
1: Yes. So the Illinois Department of Public Health mandates that anyone coming in for a procedure has a COVID test 72 hours prior to the procedure and then kind of quarantines themselves prior to their procedure. So if your COVID test was positive and it was a truly elective procedure, we would reschedule that um, for at least 10 days out from your positive test. And really, it's it's twofold. It's for the protection of the patient and for the protection of the staff that would be involved in doing that procedure. Now, if you came in and you had some emergency life-threatening procedure that needed to happen... Um, The good news is that we have the equipment that we would need to protect ourselves and to protect you if we had to go forward with anything on an emergency basis.
0: And I would assume that's happened quite a bit, right, over the last 10 months?
1: It has happened, yep. And we've been able to protect our staff and protect, um, you know, everybody involved in any of that.
0: I've uh, spoken to Pam Dunley quite a bit about the effects of the pandemic and isolation on folks. Mental health, including depression and anxiety, um, and I'm wondering uh, if uh, there've been a lot of folks, obviously too, that have have suffered some of that because they've lost loved ones due to COVID. And wonder if you have any advice for those folks who uh, may be having some mental health struggles because they've lost some loved ones.
1: I do. Um, I think that we don't even know the impact that this has had on just overall mental health um, in our society from just the isolation of people all the way to those that have, have lost loved ones and lost loved ones in a way that they were not able to be with them at the time of their death, that kind of thing. It's really um, been quite a different um, experience for people over the last year. Um, I think two things. I think we are very lucky to have Linden Oaks um, as one of our partner hospitals because we have pretty amazing behavioral health services that we offer through Linden Oaks. And then we are starting a um, a re- we're registering for a uh, support group. Starting the support group will start March third through April seventh, and it's a support group for. Um, Specific to those who are struggling with the loss of a loved one um, from COVID, so those will be done. They will be virtual, um, small groups, um, 90 minutes once a week, and they will run for six weeks. And they're run by our spiritual care team. Um, And patients, uh, families of patients, can register at COVID Support Group at EEHealth.org. Or I have a phone number if you want. It is three three one two two one zero eight seven nine.
0: Could you repeat both of those?
1: Yes. COVID Support Group at EEHealth.org. And the phone number is three three one two two one zero eight seven
0: nine. Great. That's uh, that sounds like good advice because I know there are a lot of folks out there hurting and uh, we've talked a lot about those that have been isolated, but not so much about those that have lost their loved ones. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mazir for spending time with us today, filling in for Pam the last couple weeks, and I, I know you'll be, able to be available to fill in again in the future if need be.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Rich.
0: Thanks so much. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world. At nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.